I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Most breast cancers are not the result of inherited mutation in cancer-causing genes. For families with a high incidence of breast cancer, however, a genetic component may underlie an inherited risk. We know the BRCA genes are the most common of these inherited mutations, but scientists have uncovered many more genes implicated in a risk of breast cancer. So how do genes influence breast cancer risk? And can we develop strategies to precisely predict risk on an individual level? In other words, how can researchers provide more precise risk estimates so that individuals with inherited risks can make informed decisions about their health, determining the level of risk for enhanced screening so that the right women are getting the right tests at the right age? Dr. Mark Robson is one to ask. With Dr. Kenneth Offit, Dr. Robson, among other activities, is conducting studies that employ advanced technologies that incorporate information from genetic tests to enhance the precision of genetic risk assessment in women with mutations in a BRCA gene. Why does he do it? What motivates him? You'll want to hear Dr. Robson's thoughtful response about the breast cancer community that included references to James Madison, Virgil, and the fact that, as Robson says, quote, life is full of nuances and that everyone experiences the disease in a different way. Some background. Dr. Robson is an associate attending physician of the Clinical Genetics and Breast Medicine Service in the Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is currently the clinic director of the Clinical Genetics Service and the chair of the Cancer Genetics Subcommittee of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Before a conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Mark Robson. Dr. Robson, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start with your helping differentiate between two paths to breast cancer, those that result from inherited mutation in cancer-causing genes and those that don't. Do the types of breast cancers that result from these paths differ, and which path is more common? So the vast majority of breast cancer is not due to mutations or, or the term now is pathogenic variants, which is kind of a little bit more fancy but precise. The vast majority of breast cancer is not caused by those kinds of genetic changes. They arise because of alterations that occur in the DNA that's just acquired through life. Um, but there are a fraction of women who develop breast cancer because of a specific inherited mutation. And they're, in general, um, have the same outcomes as women who don't have mutations. And with one exception, the breast cancers generally seem to resemble those of women who don't have mutations. The one exception is for women who have mutations in BRCA1, which is linked to an increased risk of uh, triple negative breast cancer, which is a particular subtype. Um, the reasons for looking for these mutations are that 
there's a couple of different ones. One is that women who have mutations, for instance, in BRCA1 or BRCA2, uh, may be at increased risk for other types of cancer, e either second breast cancers in the other breast or, uh, or ovarian cancer, and that that risk means that we should do different things to follow them up. Also, their family members may be at increased risk if they share the mutation and benefit from specific surveillance approaches and potentially even preventive surgeries. And lastly, women who have metastatic breast cancer with mutations in some genes, although not all genes, uh, may benefit from treatment with a specific class of drugs called PARP inhibitors. And that's what I just wanted to ask you about. When we talk about inherited risk or uh, pathogenic variants, perhaps, and genes and breast cancer, most often we hear about what you just raised, BRCA1 and 2. But those aren't the only genes implicated in a risk of breast cancer, are they? No, indeed not. When uh, a new type of technology called next-generation sequencing became available a, a number of years ago, it became possible to test individuals for many different genes at the same time. And once that became possible, so-called panel testing came into the clinic. And we discovered that a significant number of women have pathogenic variants or mutations in genes other than BRCA1 and BRCA2. And while BRCA1 and BRCA2 BRCA2 are still the most common identified inherited risk factors. Uh, there are a range of others that in aggregate are equally common. There was a quote I saw recently from Larry Norton of uh, MSK, but also uh, obviously BCRF, where he said, we know from our data at Memorial Sloan Kettering that if you only test people with strong family histories, you miss half the cases. Um, and and I, I know this is a, a key question. If we know inherited risk is a thing, but we don't necessarily know which genes drive the risk, how can individuals with inherited risks make informed decisions about their health? Well, I think that that's a topic that we're having a lot of discussions about right now. So what Larry was referring to was that even among women who have BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, half of the women with mutations aren't found until they themselves develop a cancer and would not have been tested based upon what their family history is until they themselves develop a cancer. That's, that's one component of the unidentified risk. The other component is that the genes other than BRCA1 and BRCA2 are actually much less strongly predisposing than BRCA1 and BRCA2. Mm. So they may move through families without actually causing cancer and so can be hidden, if you will, uh, until perhaps someone is unlucky enough to develop the disease and get tested. So let's talk about your work and some of your goals, because among your goals, as I understand it, is to determine not only how we can make more precise risk estimates, but how we can precisely predict risk on an individual level. Take me through that process. How are you trying to do that? And perhaps relatedly, what are single nucleotide polymorphisms? 
<laughs> right? Should we call SNPs because they're so much easier to say? Thank you. Thank um, you. We will call them SNPs. Yeah, SNPs. So what we've been talking about so far are um, so-called rare variants. In other words, everybody has the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, but very, because they perform normal functions in our bodies, but very, very few people actually have mutations or pathogenic variants in those genes. In the general population, it's probably only around one in 400, maybe one in 500 people have a mutation. Although in certain populations that we'll talk about later, it may be more common. Um, so, so these rare variants uh, are predisposed to cancer, but not everybody who has a mutation in one of these genes gets cancer. So for instance, for BRCA1, um, it's probably about 65 to 75% of women get breast cancer and 40 to 60% get ovarian cancer, depending on the study. Mm. For BRCA2, the numbers are perhaps a little bit lower. It's maybe two thirds get breast cancer and um, 15% or so get ovarian cancer. And for genes like those other so-called moderate penetrance genes, those other genes that we talked about a little bit earlier, um, one such gene is called CHECK2. And for those women, the lifetime risk of breast cancer is maybe about 25%. So the question becomes, what's different about the women who do get breast cancer and don't get breast cancer yes. when they have one of those variants, when they have a mutation in one of those genes? Yes. And there's a number of things that play into that. But one thing is genetic background. Um, and, and we have millions and millions of places throughout our DNA where we're subtly different from other people. These are so-called common variants or SNPs. And it turns out that, that those, some of those SNPs are associated with greater or lesser risks of disease. And this isn't just breast cancer. This is all kinds of diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not mutations in the sense that they don't cause problems with genes, but they're just part of us, part of our background. And we can now, through genetic testing in research settings, identify the pattern of common variation that a person has. And what we found is that certain patterns of common variation, so-called polygenic risk scores, are associated with greater or lesser risks of disease, both in the general population and in people who have mutations in genes like BRCA1, BRCA2, or CHECK2. So one of the things that we're trying to do is measure this background variation in individuals, hmm. um, predict how that might affect the risk that's associated with, say, a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2, and see whether if we give that information to women, the differences are sufficient to influence their decision-making about things like preventive surgery. Almost um, focusing the 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 light on the amount of risk based much more on an individual reading it seems 
than on the readings that we have had to date. Correct. Because right now, when a woman goes in for genetic counseling for a BRCA mutation, she is often given a, a fairly wide range of potential risks. Say, your risk may be anywhere from 65 to 95 percent. Um, and what we're exploring is whether it is helpful to those individuals to become a little bit more precise. Um, there's still going to be some range, but the question is, can we narrow that range in a way that it's helpful? And it may be that for the very strongly predisposing genes, um, the, the precision may be helpful. We may narrow the range, but the range may still be so high that it doesn't change decision making. But for this other group of genes that we have been talking about, the, the moderate penetrance genes, uh, it may matter because if your average risk is 25 to 30 percent, but there's some group of women that are in the 15 percent range and some group of women that are in the 40 percent range, that may well have an influence on what they decide to do. So we're also, as a next step, looking at polygenic modification of moderate penetrance. And is the group, is is this the prospective registry of multiplex testing prompt? So we, we had SNP earlier and now we have prompt. Is, <laughs> first, is this the group that you are um, doing this work with? And then two, how would you kind of characterize where you are on the work? You know, how, how far along would you say you are? Right. So prompt is actually a little different. Prompt is when multi-gene panel testing became available, um, it is the kind of thing about which we have very little evidence to understand how people are receiving the information, how the information is being communicated to them, and what they are choosing to do with the information. Uh, this was something that multi-gene panel testing was rolled out commercially, um, not as a research test, with very broad adoption very quickly, um, but with still a lot of questions about how best to use the information. So we created Prompt as a voluntary internet-based registry for people who had been found to have mutations on multi-gene panel testing to share their experiences, to, to tell us what they had, because that in and of itself was something that was interesting. What were the diseases that they had, et cetera. Uh, but also, what were they doing subsequently in terms of screening or surgery? And what was their understanding uh, of these alterations? What had they been told? What had they received? And now we're, we're following these largely women, not exclusively, but largely women serially over time to try to understand longitudinally what they're doing. So that, that's an observational project that, that I think is very important because it's giving us a, a view of what's happening in the real world with multi-gene panel testing. With regard to the to the risk modifier work, yeah. we have uh, been having we were facing some challenges getting a 
CLIA-based, which is a, a you know laboratory-approved assay done uh, that, that we could share with people that we had enough confidence would be accurate. Uh, we've now circumvented that hurdle through a relationship with a vendor, have achieved the appropriate regulatory approvals, and are now uh, moving it into the clinic to start offering the testing to women who have had newly identified VRCA mutations so that we can give them this information and essentially measure what it is that they choose to do with it. It's a question that any person would have, first of all, around genetic testing and and understanding one's own risk and modifying one's own risk um, as much as possible. But in particular, individuals at risk of carrying a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, this becomes even more powerful for them. You wrote in a recent uh, editorial in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association uh, with a colleague, you wrote a little bit about this. And one of your lines was identification of individuals at risk of carrying a BRCA1 or 2 mutation can be life-saving and should be a part of routine medical care. Now, that may have been geared towards a particular population, but I thought that that, that might be something to, to get some guidance on or some insight on from you, because it's a, an area, obviously, that uh, so many people would be curious about. So we have reasonably strong observational evidence that if you identify a woman as having a BRCA mutation and then prevent her from getting ovarian cancer by removing her, um, by doing a preventive surgery to remove her fallopian tubes and ovaries, um, that that will improve the survival of the population because screening for ovarian cancer is inadequate and uh, it's a tough disease that frequently presents an advanced stage. Um, there is also some potential benefit from women who choose to undergo preventive mastectomy, although whether that has much of a survival advantage is not clear. Um, but prophylactic oophorectomy is something that we believe does save lives. So finding women who have BRCA mutations, that's not something that you want to do lightly. Uh, certainly not in younger women because premature menopause is, is quite a significant impairment to quality of life mm. um, and potentially to long-term health. So finding the women who've got mutations is important. The way that we have done that to this point has been by using things like family history to try to predict who is more likely to have a mutation. Remember, as I said earlier, it's only about one in 400 to one in 500 in the general population. So creating a system of testing everybody becomes challenging. Um, the thought is perhaps to start this process by concentrating on groups who have higher risks of carrying a mutation. So, for instance, the population of Ashkenazi Jewish individuals, so individuals of Eastern or Central European Jewish descent, have about a one in 40 chance of carrying 
one of three specific BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. So nearly 10 times higher. Mm. And there has been thought now that perhaps everyone who is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, and defining that becomes a little bit of an issue, but yeah. everybody who's of Ashkenazi Jewish descent yes. should at least be offered or, or have a discussion about the possibility of undergoing BRCA testing, at least for those three common mutations. So it's a bit of a, a shifting of the thinking around who might want to do it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that there's, um, you know, still much discussion and, uh, you know, increasing the number of the amount of testing uh, is always, um, you know, it carries controversy is the wrong word, but, but you want to manage one wants to manage. I know, and you were saying this, uh, you know, in handle testing um, appropriately. I want to, as I'm talking to you, so much of, it seems, what you think about what you have worked on in your career, uh, what you've dedicated yourself to, is around um, the genetic component and about the considering and the managing of risk. I I found myself thinking about you almost as a a medical actuary, you know, doing thinking of (laughs) – is that so? Why? What what interests you about that? And uh, you know, have you ever thought of yourself uh, as a bit of a medical actuary? Um, no, I never thought of myself as a medical actuary <laughs> uh, because why am I interested in it? I that's a fascinating question that I've really never deeply thought about. I, I think part of it is that that my perception is that life is kind of full of nuance. And what I enjoy about this area is trying to communicate with people about uncertainty and help them navigate that in a way that is concordant with their values and how they want to approach managing potential threats to their health. I mean, not everybody who has a BRCA mutation gets cancer. And, you know, certainly not everybody with a moderate penetrance mutation gets cancer. And yet when they have a test result, Many people seem to internalize that as a diagnosis, essentially pre-cancer. And the question is, how can we help them uh, navigate that and and just recognize that this is something that is a risk that you know about? Perhaps there are others that you don't. And, and and that's what I enjoy about it. And is that does that lead in some way to your clinical work? I mean, it wasn't lost on me that my, my understanding of the clinical side for for you, um, you'll correct me if I have this wrong, um, is that your practice is weighted toward the management of young women with breast cancer, especially hereditary breast cancer. Um, I recently had a discussion with um, Dr. Ann Partridge, who runs the Young and Strong program for young women with breast cancer. Um, 
the disease is different for young women, isn't it? I, I think that the disease is is different for everybody, right? Mm, I mean, yes. everybody everybody experiences it in a different way and it has a, has a different impact. I, I, I do work a lot with younger women just because I work a lot with inherited risk and that, that kind of overlaps, but, but I also take care of people who are older as well. And, and it's the same concept. I mean, if you think about after a diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer, once again, people are living with a pretty fair degree of uncertainty about at least for a while, is this going to come back? You know, how am I going to integrate this into my life? Yeah. And again, it becomes a conversation about moving forward in the face of uncertainty and uncertainty with a, with a possibility of something not good happening. Right. And I, I think that from the humanist perspective of medicine, that that sort of being kind of a little bit of a Virgil in that setting is is, is a privilege, and and I enjoy doing that. Was it always medicine for you? Was was science always the direction that you were going to go? Um, uh, you, you mentioned Virgil. Uh, were there other other areas of interest for you growing up? I've always been interested in the arts, but in you know, humanities, but but mainly as a way of again informing perspectives on life. I, I gosh, I'm getting all philosophical here on, on, on a Thursday afternoon. But <laughs> no, I mean I, I've been joking with my daughter is now kind of in tenth grade, and, and I remember actually starting thinking about doing medicine when I was in tenth grade biology class. So said so, yeah, I mean it pretty much has always been medicine for me, but for different reasons. When I was younger, it was because it was tough and it was hard and I felt like it was intellectually challenging. Mm. Um, and, and then, which has a certain arrogance to it. And then as I got older, it sort of became much more because it was a life of connection mm. and, uh, and connection, not only to your patients, but connection to your colleagues and connection to the broader world. And, and I think that that's a, that's a very, um, nourishing kind of thing. Yeah, that is that is not bad. It's not a bad way to to go through. And to to close out, uh I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you um you know doing the amounts of research that you do and that other uh researchers, scientists, doctors do um can be challenging at times. What what role has BCRF played in your research? Well, BCRF has been an incredible has been an incredible financial supporter. Uh, the model has been, um, is very unique. And, and the idea that, that you have funding to explore ideas that would be difficult to get funded through other mechanisms because of the, um, because of the novelty, because of the, the newness of what you're trying to do. So, so there's that component to it. The other component goes back to what we were just talking about, is that it's a phenomenal community um, of both researchers, but also, and, and perhaps more importantly, um, patients, family members, supporters mm. who are 
energizing through their dedication to the cause and their energy for the cause. And so I think we all talk about the research support. That's critically important. But but the community writ large is, in my mind, equally important and perhaps even more so. Well, thank you. I'm certain that they are uh, grateful to have you part of that community. And uh, yeah, the, the, it's a it's something. It's a remarkable community, uh, to say the least. Dr. Robson, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, of course, thank you for the work that you do. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. That was my conversation with Dr. Mark Robson. My thanks to Dr. Robson for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.